0: As you can see, this morning I'm going to be talking about the rich fool. It's one of the parables of Jesus. On Friday, November the 22nd, 1963, the day of the assassination of then-American President John F. Kennedy, one of the most dramatic events of the 20th century, just about anyone who lived through the events of that day, who were aware of what was going on, would be able to tell you what they were doing when they heard the news of that terrible killing. I wasn't alive, so I can't, but do any of you remember it? Since then, we've had the untimely death of Princess Diana in August 1997. And who can forget the events of September 11, 2001, those planes flying into the Twin Towers in New York and into the Pentagon in Washington, or the tsunami of December 26, 2004, in Indonesia, Thailand, and the Asian subcontinent or the Japanese tsunami on March 11, 2011. Events such as these impact on you. You remember what you were doing at the time. I wasn't alive at the time of the JFK assassination, but I clearly remember the day that we found out about Princess Diana's death. I also clearly remember the twin tower attacks. i had just finished watching a movie with some friends in my dorm room at college. It was about 2.30 in the morning. And as we turned the movie off, we saw the news flash come up on the TV. And then we didn't get any sleep the rest of that night because we were watching that. But we watched the live coverage as the second plane hit the North Tower and the subsequent attack on the Pentagon, and it stuck with me for days. I also clearly remember the 2004 tsunami and what I was doing at the time. See, I heard about it just after Christmas evening dinner, with my family and we would just returned back to our rented apartment in Interlaken in Switzerland because my parents lived in the UK at the time. And we saw the first reports of the tsunami on the news. And this one impacted me more than most of the others because it's places I'd been, where I'd lived, where I'd travelled through. But let me go back to the events of November 22, 1963. An older friend of mine was talking with me one day, sharing his memories of that event. It was a Friday winter's night in the UK for him and he wasn't in the Adventist church at the time. And the highlight of Friday nights for him as a little boy of four years old was watching Bonanza on TV. I don't know if you remember that show. I have vague memories of looking at it on TV when I was a kid. It was a Western series that featured the Cartwright family, Ben and Big Hoss and Little Joe. My friend didn't really understand the stories. But he loved the horse chases the fights and the whole western scene the program one night was suddenly taken off the screen and a newscaster appeared in its place david didn't know what he was talking about only that he knew it wasn't bonanza he was quite agitated and he went to his parents and said what's happened they've taken bonanza off his parents came in and listened to the newscast and they explained that something terrible had happened but all that All of that went over david's head he was just concerned about bonanza all he can remember from that night is he went to bed crying a sad little boy completely oblivious to the fact that the most powerful political figure in the world had just been assassinated and all he cared about was bonanza he had missed the point but i guess that's understandable when you're a little boy of four years of age it's understandable that you'd miss the point However, it's not so understandable when you're mature in years, when you should know better, when you should be aware of what really counts and what's really important in life. And there are many examples in the Bible and in history of people who have missed the point. Who totally failed to understand what was really important in life. And one such person was the subject of a very famous story that Jesus told. The story of the rich fool. And we find it in Luke chapter 12. It's a story as old as time, but it's news today. A story with a very timeless message. We'll read it together. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along in Luke chapter 12. If not, it'll be on the screen for you. And we'll begin in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This is one of the parables of Jesus that springs directly from its context. It was quite common practice in those times that if anyone had a problem or a grievance, that they should take it to a rabbi and ask for a decision for some sort of guidance or resolution. The very fact that Jesus was asked to adjudicate in this situation shows He was regarded in very high esteem by some members of society and he was looked upon as being a man of wisdom and authority. However, the problem that he was asked to make a decision on was one that had already been dealt with extensively in Jewish law. The man's problem concerned the division of the family estate and there were already very clear guidelines laid down in Jewish law about what would happen in the event of someone's death. Jewish law was very clear that two-thirds of the estate would go to the eldest son, and the remaining one-third would go to the younger son. And if there were more than two sons, to be split equally amongst the number of sons left. The law was very clear on that point. So the real issue here was one of greed. This brother either wanted to keep what he had, or he wanted more. We're not sure which of the brothers brought the matter to Jesus, but it seems as if by airing it publicly, he wanted to win public sympathy for his cause, and he wanted to win the support of Jesus. It was almost as if he thought of Jesus as a reporter on 60 Minutes, that Jesus would see things his way. Instead, Jesus issued a warning, a warning against greed, a warning against covetousness, a warning against the wrong perspective of life, and like the good teacher he is, he went on to illustrate with a story. In Luke 12, verse 16, it continues. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all of my surplus and goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. It's a story of a farmer who enjoyed an unbroken run of success everything he did smelled of roses and everything he touched turned to gold all his life seemed to spread out before him his crops were plentiful and abundant but he had no place to store his produce and so he decided that he would build bigger barns to store all that he had then he looked forward to a life where he could dine wine and recline he could look forward to a life of leisure and relaxation Now, on the surface, there's a lot to commend this man. He obviously was a man of vision. He had planned for the future. He could read the markets, discern trends. He was a man of ability. He was good at his work. He consistently got the best from his property. He was diligent. He was a hard worker. He wasn't afraid of honest sweat or earnest toil. He was honest. He gained his wealth fairly. There is no indication that he used dubious means to obtain his wealth. And he certainly wasn't a miser. He wasn't going to hoard all of the money. He was looking forward to spending it and enjoying the pleasures. So from the outward appearance, this man was successful materially, and he was respected socially. But God called him a fool, someone lacking in wisdom and perception fool Those are not words to speak lightly So what are the lessons we can learn from the experience of this man Why did God call him a fool Let me suggest that this man had a wrong perspective He had a wrong perspective of life and he had missed the point about life what life was all about and about what people were about Jesus says in verse 15 a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions But unfortunately, this man measured life by his possessions. He was driven by greed. Greed measures life by possessions. Greed equates the sum of a person's worth with the size of a person's wallet. In other words, if you have a lot, you are a lot. But if you don't have much, you aren't much. That's greed. That's materialism at its most blatant and at its worst. Jesus warned against all kinds of greed. Of course you see greed is relative you find greed in poor countries too not just in the affluent west but it's relative greed has many different kinds of faces and greed is not defined by what something costs it's measured by what it costs you and me what it costs us in terms of our relationships in terms of our values in terms of our standing before god and our faith And if getting something, we compromise any of those things, then it's a cost too high. That is the mistake that this man made. He missed the point about life. Life is not about what you have, but about who you are. What a person is, is more important than what a person has. This man also missed the point about wealth. He totally failed to understand what wealth was all about and where he had got it from. You see, there's nothing wrong with wealth in itself. But wealth is actually very limited in terms of what it can do. It has been said that money will buy a bed, but not sleep. Books, but not intellect. Food, but not appetite. A house, but not a home. Medicine, but not health. People, but not friends. Amusement, but not happiness. Tranquilizers, but not peace of mind. You see, wealth can only do so much. It's very limited in terms of what it can do in this life. And it's also limited in what it can do in the life beyond. It's stating the obvious but we can't take it with us. We can't do it. We can't take it when, with us when we die. Now we know that Scripture tells us that and many sayings have appeared in many languages that speak this truth as well. For example, in Spanish there's a grim proverb that there are no pockets in a shroud or in a burial cloth. You can't take it with you, and the ancient Egyptians tried, but they failed. When the oil tycoon John D. Rockefeller died, there was tremendous interest in the amount of his legacy, and one newspaper reporter made it his mission to find out just how much John D. Rockefeller had left in his will. So he arranged a meeting with one of Rockefeller's personal assistants, and very close to the beginning of the interview, he asked a question that had been On his lips, ever since he heard about the businessman's death, how much did John D. Rockefeller leave behind? And back came the reply, all of it. Andrew Carnegie, a man who left Scotland with very little money but went on to become one of the richest men in America in the late 1800s, in an 1889 article titled The Gospel of Wealth, once wrote this, a man who dies rich dies disgraced. He called on the rich to use their wealth to improve society and in the last 18 years of his life he gave away over 350 million American dollars, 90% of his wealth, to establish over 3,000 libraries, a multitude of scholarships and various charities and foundations. Now in 2006 dollar terms, 350 million US back then is about eight and a half billion dollars today. He still had many millions left when he died. But at least during his lifetime, he realized the limitations of wealth and he realized it wasn't for him to keep, but to give away and to share. But the rich fool didn't have that concept. He had a limited view of wealth. He missed the point about wealth. And he also missed the point about time. He thought his time on earth was unlimited. In actual fact, it was short. He died that very night. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is a psychologist who's written a lot about death and dying, and she says this, it is only when we truly know and understand that we have a limited time on earth and that we have no way of knowing when our time is up, then we will begin to live each day to the fullest as if it were the only day we had. You see, the fact that we only have limited time should not depress us or frighten us but rather it should bring home the fact that life is precious. That each day is a gift from God and it's to be used to the full. It's a talent to be used wisely and well. But this man had missed the point about time and he had failed to reckon with eternity. Eternity. For 40 years, that word appeared on the pavements of Sydney. A man went around, Arthur Stace by name, With a chalk and an elegant script, he wrote the word eternity. How fitting, therefore, during the New Year's Eve celebrations of 1999, when one millennium gave way to another, that the word eternity should be emblazoned on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Eternity. Did you notice the last sentence in the first song, Hosanna said, from earth into eternity? But this man had missed the point. He had missed the point about the limitations of time and about the vastness of eternity. He had a wrong perspective and he had missed the point about life, about wealth and about time. Not only had he a wrong perspective, but he had also shown wrong priorities. And that was particularly true in regards to relationships. He only thought about himself. He didn't think about other people. The story is full of the first-person singular. It's a very short story, yet you find words like I and my and mine very regularly throughout that short story. You know, a schoolboy was once asked to define what parts of speech the words my and mine represented, and he mistakenly said aggressive pronouns. But there is actually quite a bit of truth in that. This man was aggressive. My, my goods, my barns, my work. And when it came to spending, it was all about him too. There was no mention of others. He was the most important person in his worldview. What are the practical implications for us? What can we learn from these wrong priorities? If I were to ask you the question, what is more important to you, your family and friends, or your work and study, what would you say? Of course you would say your family and friends, or I hope you would. But how does that translate into the way in which we use our time? How does that translate into the way in which we spend our energy? Yes, we say that family and friends and others are important, but how does that translate into the way in which we spend our time and into the way in which we devote our efforts? Because that is a very good indicator of where our values and our priorities lie. Time with family, time with friends, is that a duty or a delight? Is it a burden or a blessing? Is that something that you regard as essential or just an extra that you can fit in when you have the time? As you think about these things, I want to play you a song. It's not a Christian song or a Sabbath song, I recognize, but the message in it is very powerful. The words will come up on screen as we listen to the song. Thanks, Michael. <laughs>
1: Never it, said, I'm going to be like him, yeah. You know I'm going to be like him. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. Little boy together then Dad. you know we'll have a good time then. I've long since retired my son's moved away I called him up just the other day I said I'd like to see you at the man When you're coming home, son, I don't know when, but we'll get together then. We're gonna have a good time there.
0: I've heard that song many times over the years. I'm sure most of you have at some point. And every time I hear that song, I feel a lump come into my throat. It's an effort sometimes to keep back the tears and sometimes I feel a tremendous sense of guilt because I know how easy that can happen. And it does happen in my own life, my wife tells me. Not today, I'm too busy. Another time, I'm tired. Another time, we'll have a good time then. And there are some things that can wait, the time with kids Child stage of development, they don't wait. They pass on, they move through. I have a countdown timer on my phone that outlines how much longer I have with each of my kids before they graduate high school. I look at it every so often. My eldest girl has 459 weeks left with me. Sounds like a large number, but time flies. My middle one has 564 weeks and my youngest 668. Every so often I pull it out and just check as a reminder to say, use your time well. And that can be true of relationships and friendships as well. My mother's side of the family is split between brothers and sisters who refuse to talk to each other. My eldest uncle removed himself from the family and refused to acknowledge his parents as his father and mother. For years he refused to even talk on the phone to them. He even dragged the youngest brother and sister into his point of view. And on my grandfather's deathbed in 2002, he returned to have one final talk with his dad. No one knows what was said, but it took a further 12 years before my grandmother and mother began to reconnect with their son and older brother and the younger side of the family. For almost 20 years, time flew by with no love or connection with that side of the family. I'm happy to say things are slowly improving today imagine the time lost. You see, today we're told that we can have it all, but we can't, at least not at the same time. And because of that, we need to make choices. We need to determine priorities. And when it comes to those choices and priorities, it's critical that we match our time, our values, and our use of energy with those things that we think are important. The man in Luke 12 had wrong priorities. He just thought of himself to the exclusion of everyone else, and he had no time for God. Or well, maybe he believed in God, but God didn't figure in his plans. He ignored God. God did not condemn him for this fact, and the fact that he failed to plan for the future. The man was condemned for the fact that his plans didn't include God. You see, this man ignored God's basic law of finance. You and I own nothing. We're not landlords, we're tenants. We're not owners we're managers we're not proprietors we're the stewards all that we have comes from god it's a gift from god god has given us the opportunity and the ability to receive of these resources but this man did not recognize that he was condemned for his affluence not for his affluence but for his arrogance he thought he had done it all and not only is this true of our resources but it's also true of our lives life is a gift Life is fragile. Just this past school term, we said goodbye to a man who died too soon, the husband of one of our teachers. And it brings home that life is fleeting and fragile and frail, and that our times here on earth are in God's hands. And so the greatest priority is to seek God and to have a relationship with Him. That is what this fool blatantly failed to do. And so I close with a very sobering question that is asked by Jesus and one that is recorded in Mark's Gospel. It's actually two questions. In Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, he says this, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul or life? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their life? The man in this parable got it completely wrong. He totally and utterly missed the point. He invested in his time, and energy and things that he couldn't keep to the exclusion of something that he couldn't lose what a fool what a tragedy you see life isn't about self it's about service such a principle was incorporated into President Kennedy's inaugural address when he said and so my fellow Americans ask not what your country can do for you ask what you can do for your country you're probably very familiar with that but that is what the kingdom of God is about as well it's about service that is true life life of service living to the glory of God developing character that is what our real life is all about and it can only be meaningfully enjoyed in a relationship with God and our priority in life should be to seek God to know Him as our Lord and friend and Savior and His gift to us in return is eternal life by His power we can never lose Jim Elliot I don't know if you know who he is died for what he believed in with the gospel over 60 years ago when he and four friends went as missionaries to the remote jungle of Ecuador to share the gospel with the Alca tribe but during his training at Wheaton College in America he once made famous this statement he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose he gave his life something he couldn't keep and in return he received eternal life which he will never lose One of the most beautiful outcomes from the death of Jim and the four other missionaries is the story of Steve Saint, the son of Nate Saint, one of the four missionaries or five missionaries killed with Jim Elliot, who went back to the remote tribe and continued the work of his father and the others when he became an adult and converted the whole tribe to Christianity. Today, Steve calls his father's murderer, Barbe, is the murderer's name, calls him his father and he lives with Steve's family. This amazing story was made into a documentary called Beyond the Gates of Splendour, and if you want to watch a powerful tearjerker of a story, watch Stephen Curtis Chapman's version of this with his songs and the story where Steve brings Barbet out into the concert. It's an incredible story. Oscar Bernadotte, crown prince of Sweden in the 1800s, penned the words to what is now a famous hymn. In 1888, he relinquished his royal title and right to succession in order to marry a commoner.